welcome back to yet another episode of Behind the Lens, or as I think we're being known now, Behind the Lens in the Time of COVID Quarantine. Uh, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers of TV and TV and filmmakers, writers, directors, producers, screenwriters, costume designers, composers, production designers, uh, VFX. I've got a great interview coming up for you in, in the next couple weeks with Ken McGaw of uh, What a Digital. Speaking of VFX, talking about a killer sequence in uh, Jum- the Jumanji 2, which is now available on VOD and digital, and I think Blu ray. Blu-ray as well. Um, but we talk to them all, and especially our beloved indie filmmakers um, who have always been, indie filmmakers have always been, uh, you know, my heart and soul. Um, what these filmmakers can do, their creativity, their imagination, some of them need a little guidance, but for the most part, we we consistently see good stories, great performances, and it it's a testament to what some of the writers and directors are doing on the indie level when you take a look at some of the talent that steps up and becomes part of the productions. I'm very excited about our guest today. First one, who should be calling in momentarily, is Chad Anthony Miller. Um... Our regular listeners may remember Chad all the way back to our very first show over six years ago. Chad was one of my original two co-hosts. And then he moved to New York because he is an actor after all. And he likes the stage and he likes indie film. Uh, But I'm so and Chad and I have stayed friends all these years Um but he actually has a film that is out right now on Amazon Prime, Ophelia Falls, that we're going to talk about. And he is in the upcoming film, Batshit Bride. Originally, Batshit Bride was going to open on the 1st. It was going to open this week. Uh, and the writer-director of the film, Jonathan Smith, was going to do the, the show today. But because no theaters are open, the distributor moved the opening of that of Batshit Bride to May the 8th. So in the interim, since Chad is in that film too, uh, Chad is joining, we're going to talk about Batshit Bride today as well as Ophelia Falls because the trailer drops on April 1st. And then at the midpoint of the show, I'm very excited even more excited than having Chad on the show. I am very excited to have writer, director, producer Brent Wilson join us to talk about his latest documentary, Streetlight Harmonies, and that glorious world of doo-wop. And the, it takes us through the whole history with some of the most uh, interviews with some of the greatest musical talents, uh, including, and it was a great thrill for me, um, Someone that I have known for almost 50 years popped up in this doc. So we'll talk about that later. But right now, is he on? Is he ready, Pam? Ah, well, let me bring the man, the man, the myth, the legend, 
Chad Anthony Miller. <laughs> Hello, my love. Hello. <laughs> Hello, Debbie. I'm so happy to have you. Are you kidding? This is like coming home. It's so great. Uh, can you believe that that we started this show over six years ago? I, I cannot, because that means I'm in a new decade of my life. <laughs> so am I. Uh, uh, <laughs> Perfect. I am. So we've never looked better. That this is true. We are old, as I always like to say, old, wise, and well preserved. <laughs> no, older, just old, not old. Oh, okay, older, wise, and well preserved. <laughs> okay, or yeah, yeah, we do look. We yeah, do look. One of those. We'll just but, add an er. Exactly. We'll just add an er to to everything. <laughs> so. I'm so happy that you are safe and sound. You're in Texas right now. You too, absolutely. I mean, you're in California, I'm assuming. I'm operating out of West Texas, Lubbock, home of Buddy Holly. Lubbock, Texas. Yeah, love it or leave it. No, uh, Matt Davis is from here, the Dixie Chicks. uh, Also have uh, from here, performed here. Uh, Buddy Holly. Let's see, who else? John Denver went to school at Texas Tech. So we have a lot of arts that are happening right here. My, my. Well, it sounds like if you can't be in New York uh, or L.A., it sounds like a good place for you. Debbie, this is the third coast. (laughs) Is it? Is that what it is now? This is the third coast? That's what I'm telling myself. No, you know, there are actually so many arts and culture organizations here in Lubbock. And last year I was able to come back and do some things here the year before that. Um, If if I had to move anywhere else and, and do something... Lubbock definitely has like a huge subset of actors and performing artists from all over backgrounds that it would be nice to be. Nice. How long are you going to be staying in Lubbock until after Corona, Corona, COVID oh. lockdown? <laughs> that, that, that is the magic question, right? Um, currently, we are going to be here until mid-April, and then we might be renting a car and driving back slowly up into Manhattan. Ooh. Well, I, you know, <laughs> no, you're supposed to be like, ooh, it's supposed to be more pleasurable. Like, okay, oh, well, we'll, s- we'll, s- well, we'll see what happens in two weeks. Um, yeah, exactly. We will. That's that's the big thing. But right now, I'm so happy because I watched Ophelia Falls. Oh, uh, yay! It is a cute movie, and this is something that uh, you you on and you know I've seen other films where you've popped up in. Yes. Because I always tell you when I see you, and it's like, and you're like, oh my god, I forgot I did that. Um, you, you know what I call them? These are like a cameo appearances. Like I come in, <laughs> not quite a cameo. Like if, you know, it's a little chewing the scenery for me, so I, I call it a cameo. So just you know, okay, well, in and out, do a little, do a little dance, and then I'm gone. Okay, in Ophelia Falls and in Bad Shit Bride, which. Mm-hmm. Sadly, people have to wait another whole month uh, to see that. Although film. the trailer, the trailer, the trailer drops on April Fool's Day. Yes, so it you does. Can get a quick snapshot then. Yes, it does. Um, so we'll talk about that one too. But in both of these, you you know, in the one, you're a priest or a pastor. You perform weddings. In the other, <laughs> you're a loon and you perform weddings. <laughs> I know. It is, there's something to be said, right? Because the first thing that you saw me in was An Ordinary Family. Yes. Uh, so many moons ago. And that was also uh, a movie that had some religious things to it as well. So yes. So this is clearly a motif that, that appears in my work. 
Well, and even that more dramatic piece that you were in, uh, and you had that incredible mm-hmm. monologue. Mm-hmm. Monologue. Um, it was very. It was very Thank sobering. You. That I think was. Well, the I think. The, yeah, that, that's probably the most different thing that I have done out of all of my projects because the the film and TV stuff was also me being a nurse, right? Criminal mind, nurse that gets shot. General Hospital, nurse. nurse is delivering bad news, <laughs> right? So this is actually, or Such a Funny Life was actually an opportunity for me just to be like, you know, very straight, narrow, um, aging comedian, down on his luck, pro- probably closer to me. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> than, than, uh, please. Uh, I say it with love. I say it with love. <laughs> well, you know, but what I love about these little indie films that you do all of these films, and having talked to everybody on, you know, An Ordinary Family and on some of these other films, it's very much, I, was, I always like to think of some of these indie films, especially the ones that you get involved in, it's very much like Mickey and Judy want to put on a show. And, uh-huh. Uh-huh. and it's really friendship and camaraderie that comes together in order to make that film happen. It, it, it's so incredibly true, and I will say, I mean, like full disclosure, all of those movies that you have seen um, are because I have known some of the people involved. So, An Ordinary Family, uh, I knew the Shremers, and so they asked me to audition for the director. Ophelia Falls, I knew a group of people from both Texas Tech and Los Angeles. Um, I had been for Julie Mitchell is the writer and co-director of Ophelia Falls. And we weren't at Texas Tech at the same time, but I was there with her sister. And when I moved out to L.A., her sister introduced me to Julie. Wendy introduced me to Julie. And we became, like, fast friends. I did, like, an improv um, scene for her for this uh, project that she had also co-produced with Sean Little, who is also uh, a producer of Ophelia Falls. It was called Betty and Dee Dee School of Acting Arts. We had so much fun doing that that we kept on racking our brains to come up with ways that we could generate new projects. And she and her husband, I have to say, like they are just, they're content creators. Like they, I, I have the utmost love and inspiration for them because they create stuff every day. And it's using exactly what you said. It's like taking their friends and family. How can we use our collective arts to tell a story? And that's, that's how Ophelia Falls was born. And I had and such a funny life, which you saw. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I, I was going to say, and Ophelia Falls it is so, it is done, the humor, it's so matter-of-fact, it's yes. so inherent to life. There are some quirky things that are fabulous, like the mother that stays in her bedroom and never comes out, and all you see is, is <laughs> yes. her hand stick it's out from so, the door yes. to get pick up a bottle of wine. Um, exactly. You know, and the, I think those are the things that I love, right? Like, there's truth to all of these characters. Like, we're like, we know that mother, right? Like, we know who that is. Yeah. And... You know, Julie's character of Ophelia, like that person that comes home from New York to, to see their family, and they're like, is, is, did I grow up in this family? Like, did I, was I separated at birth? How did all of this happen? So and... I think she writes from such a place of truth that it was really easy for all of us just to come in as friends and family and continue to tell this beautiful story that she created. Well, and thus you know why I stay 3,000 miles away from mine. <laughs> Well, I just want to remind you that I'm quarantined currently with my own father. So there, that's that's rife with humor right there. <laughs> oh my God, you should be you should be taking yep. notes. But and well, what my, my partner is here too, so we're calling it quarantine. Quarantine oh with my God. father. <laughs> oh my God, 
Well, I love. <laughs> You're I, welcome. I have to say, I love your character of Brett in Ophelia Falls. Uh, <laughs> you sh- you pop up in a photograph at the 49 minute mark, but then, you know, pe- uh. people have to wait. Because then the real <laughs> hilarity ensues at the hour 33 mark when you actually show up in this household. <laughs> and, I know. And then the, the most unorthodox wedding ceremony probably ever. Right? Well, my, fa- my favorite was your costume. Of course, the pink button-down <laughs> shirt. But it was the, the clean Hanes socks that had red Hanes embroidered <laughs> on the bottom of them. Uh you bring such humor just with these little things and just the your very matter-of-the-fact attitude um, in that film. Batshit Bride, here you are, you're going to marry people. Um, you know, first we've got <laughs> right. you just in the church in a, dro- in a jogging suit, and I heard all about the glasses, your glasses really falling off your face <laughs> and breaking. Oh, yes. You know, but that's art, right? Like, things happen. If, if, if something doesn't get broken along the way, did you ever really make something? I mean, I think that's kind of the underwritten rule. Yeah, I got involved in Batshit Bride from um, the woman that plays Aunt Susanna. Like, you see her when all of the um, reunion stuff is happening, when our lead character is actually meeting her family, coming in for the wedding. And Amanda Brooklerner plays Aunt Susanna, who comes over, you know, she's got mm-hmm. this uh, Long Island accent. She's so excited. <laughs> and Amanda is a group uh, of friends that I have up in New York who, who she knew that she was doing this project. She was working with Jonathan, and she thought, who do I know that could, you know, potentially tap into these, you know, crazy, not, cra- not crazy, but, you know, like eccentric characters. And lo and behold, as I'm watching that movie the other night, I see, like, there's 30 of us. There's, like, 30 of my New York friends all scattered throughout the movie, from, like, office scenes to wedding scenes to party scenes. Like, it's just, like, why would you not want to be an actor when you can, you know, I mean, don't you want a job where you can go to work every day and just you love everybody that's there? That, I, that's me of course. So I've been very fortunate with that. No, you, you definitely have. And I love the family nature of so many of your films, Chad. Um, yeah. You really, you gravitate, I, I you gravitate towards those. Well, I think I've been very lucky in the fact that, you know, I went, I did UCB, uh, which is Upright Citizens Brigade in both New York and LA and the Groundlings, which was in LA. Uh, not was, still is, is guys. It's still a functioning school. Um, and, and they're very family-based training programs. Mm-hmm. And myself, like growing up in West Texas, family was very important to me. Not only the family you have, but the family that you create. Mm-hmm. And so I'm finally at a point in my career where I can be a bit more selective about projects. And the projects that I really want to do are those that really feel like coming home. Like it's a, it's a story about um, people having to overcome obstacles either within their own identities or their family's identities. So at the end... We are all reminded of who we are, what we need, the family, whether it's created or the, the family that we're born into. So that's the most important thing to us, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we can't feel alone when we have all these beautiful people around us. Well, and, you know, going to Ophelia Falls for a second, there are some truly heartfelt, in the third act, the, the dad-daughter moment um, where Ophelia finds out that secrets of her past that she thought were hidden she finds out her dad, yes. her dad always knew. And yeah. it's like how many fathers and daughters 
fathers seem to always know these things about their daughters. And the authenticity that comes through within the character of Ophelia and with all the characters uh, in Ophelia Falls is just so true to well, life. That's, that's what I thought she, she captured so well. She captured the family dynamic of her with both her mother and her and her father, you know, separately and then collectively, obviously, at the end of the movie. But the relationship with her sister, mm-hmm. you know, like I can obviously see um, evocations of that with my, my relationship with my brother. Her relationship with her brother who, you know, she didn't even know. Uh, I, I don't want to give a plot point away, yes, obviously. We but like, she didn't know something about him. Yep. Obviously, and, and that gets revealed later. So it's like we think that we know ourselves and we think that we know our family. But then these relationships, right, they're not static. They're very dynamic. So every day is, is a new piece of that. And how we react to that is how we move through life. But, I mean, the ensemble that is put together for Ophelia Falls, everybody, the everyday people, you don't, Everyday people. Exactly. You don't have any, you know, everybody is, you know, picture perfect, like they just came out of an L Fashion Magazine, you know, photo shoot. <laughs> um, yeah. It's, you know. Well, I do have to say, I mean, Ophelia Falls, like she, if I'm correct, they, they shot that in like a little less than two weeks. So all of the locations are locations that very much are those um, actors, right? Like, we shot in Julian Marcus's home. We shot at the um, dance studio where they, uh, where both Julie, Sean, and Jody, there's uh, three people in the movie, taught. Um, that we, we shot in their backyard. That that photo that you love of me wearing that bow tie, that came from their yes. backyard. Uh, I'm sure that the driving scenes came from their car, right? Like, it's, it's just a very homegrown, family-made movie. Well, you know, I have to ask you. In the your big scene, your big wedding scene, that is a very small bedroom that how many people <laughs> yes. crammed into as an actor. Now, granted, uh, you, you made room for yourself on the bed, but with everyone standing <laughs> around, how is that for you from a production standpoint as an actor with that many people in a tiny space? And you've got a director and you know, cinematographer, camera operator, uh, trying to get lights in there. Does that ha- hinder you at all in your performance? Um, I don't. <laughs> I don't think it hinders the performance necessarily. But like you know, as an actor, you're thinking, "Oh wait, I, I can't put my arm here because I'm actually touching the cameraman's leg." Or, or <laughs> is that my leg that I'm touching, or is that somebody else that I'm touching? But I don't really think, like, once once we've actually blocked it out and we know what we're doing, for some reason in my mind, like, it just all fades away. And mm-hmm. so I'm like, oh, this is just, like, it just happens to be more people in the room that aren't saying anything. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it, it works for me. I mean, it was more difficult for me in an ordinary family when we were just doing those two-person scenes. Right. But because it was an improvised movie, we had four cameras on us at any given time. Mm-hmm. So you have just a two-person scene, but you have, you know, 15 to 20 people around you. Right. That's when it felt a little bit more awkward for me. The more people around when there's a larger scene, it doesn't even seem to phase me at all. Mm-hmm. Now, how much rehearsal time did you get? And how long were you on set for Ophelia Falls? Uh, Ophelia Falls was just a day for me. So uh, Julie and Marcus really had it like down to a fine art because they knew that, you know, people were having to take off from work, from their day jobs and stuff to kind of business around. They also... Um, the, the young 
daughter in the movie is actually Julia Marks. This her name is May. She's so such a lovely, lovely, lovely individual. And I had the fortunate chance of being able to babysit her uh, as kind of all of this was going down. That's when I was living in LA at the time. So they had it down to a fine science where you're going to come in from like one to three thirty. Um, just, you know, make sure that you're as off book as you can before you come. We might have like some slight edits or something at the end. But once that camera's on, we're doing it. We have like two to three takes and then we're going to lock it. And Batshit Bride was kind of the, the same way too. Like Jonathan shot that in two weeks. Mm. So he also knew that he only had a limited time at each location and he was dealing with actors because he was shooting in Connecticut, but many yeah. of the actors were taking trains in from New York. So he had to maximize everybody's time as well. So we all went out at 6 o'clock in the morning, one morning to shoot that wedding stuff, and we were done at, like, probably 6 that night. And we're back. So it was, like, a 12-hour day. And then I came back for, like, a smaller day to do the uh, church stuff where I do the <laughs> disco karaoke, I guess. I don't really know. Hard, hard, hard metal dance. You know, I can't wait to see the trailer because I want to see if, oh, right? I want to see if any of your part is in the trailer because it is so you are so hilarious in the film. Uh, uh Debbie, you're so good to me. Thank you. That's so kind. One of the things that I enjoyed the most actually is when we were watching the the movie last night just so I could prep on it a bit more before you and I talked today. Uh-huh. The um wedding collage album that happens during the credits. Yes. It's so fun to see all of these, you know, the the outtakes like me getting to play with the bride a little bit, the um, the families coming together, the the drag queen <laughs> coming together—all—he he just crafted this beautifully comedic mini movie within the larger movie. It's it's just beautiful to watch. Oh my god, he absolutely did. Um, yeah, it's it, and the film overall is very light and bright tonally and visually. Um, yes, incredible cinematography. Jason Marin's cinematography on Bad Shit Bride is is fabulous. But I, I know I turned to Ryan last night and I said, like, this is like, I, I can't like this is probably the, the, the most um, clear picture. Like, and, and not just that, like any films, obviously, like, you you know, we're all doing like a shoestring budget and we're all working on whatever cameras that we have. But for some reason, like the, the, the crystal clear quality of that movie, I'm mm-hmm. like, I, I feel like, right. I, I'm, I'm watching that live in the theater now, and I'm just watching it from my computer. They did such an amazing job. Oh, my that. God. And I love the whole premise of the story. You know, a bride decides to play a practical joke on her groom on April Fool's Day and say, ah, no wedding, sorry. Uh, But then the tables turn. And and, and all right, and then all of that dirty laundry comes out. Like, she finds out so many things that she hasn't really bargained for. It is hilarious. And I have (laughs) to say, Megan Falcone, who plays Heather, our bride, she... Her, she is frenetic, high energy, fun, yeah. and she's reminds me of a rapid fire Rosalind Russell and his girl Friday. The oh, way. that's such a good comparison. She yeah, be so happy to hear that. Yeah, I I love what you like for for those two too. Like the 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 leads of that Megan Falcone and, and her counterpart, they also shot like into it. So the fact that they learned that script so well. I don't think any of them slept, quite frankly. I mean, I know that Jonathan slept like four to five hours a night. Wow. And I, and I don't know how they were able to turn that around because Megan is literally in every scene of that movie. Every yes. scene of that movie. She yeah. Did. And I love the shift in her character. And I love how Jonathan paid attention to all the little details right down to her transition 
you know, Heather's transition from playing a practical joke to, you know, having a come to Jesus moment to having to reevaluate herself. And it's all reflected in her clothing as Uh. well as we go through the film. And that is, I did not, I did not even know, good, that's a good discerning eye, Debbie, that's great, it, it, I didn't even notice that. It really, the, the, the costuming, and I can't wait to talk to Jonathan about all of it in May, when he, when he's on the show, when the film actually comes out, hopefully. Um, it will, it will, we're, we're crossing our fingers on our toes that all, everything goes according to plan, and all of these, all of these beautiful features that people are making are finding their homes wherever they may be. Well, I'm just so happy um, to see so many, even the the bigger distributors, um, you know, like Disney, you know, they very quickly, they got onward onto a digital platform and onto Disney Plus. Yes. Uh, the Hunt, Universal did that with The Hunt, um, you know, several others. And I, Robert, the um, huh, Resistance that my friend Jonathan mm-hmm. Jakubowicz uh, wrote and directed incredible film it was supposed to open in theaters on friday obviously couldn't so it went straight to digital vod uh see but i think what what i'm happy about is that i mean i guess the the silver lining of any of this if if there can be a silver lining i i'm not i mean i I want to be very respectful this is a horrible uh time that we're living in but if it's it's if people are somehow getting closer i was saying this to, to ryan my partner the other day it almost reminds me like we've returned to a time before the smartphone right yeah like people are because there's sometimes less distraction because they can't get out more they are turning to um their own artistic pursuits or something to get things done and i think we're actually going to see like a huge influx of art come out of this period that will be very transformative and healing and therapeutic and help us pull into, into wherever we're going to end up on the other side of this yeah well, I, uh, you know, I hope you're right. I sincerely hope you are right. I would love to see that. I, I was talking to some directors uh, last week, and I was telling all of them, it's like, you know, this should be a very creative time for you. When you can, go outside, get shots and footage of, you know, empty right. streets and bank it, just like sound guys do. They go out and they catch ambient sound all the time or the lack of ambient sound. Um that's right, and just create like your own stock portfolio for where you can use. It's been so heartwarming to watch my friends in New York. Obviously, I can only see virtually what they're doing, but they're like shooting webisodes, just like them, um, with with whoever happens to be in their apartment that they're also quarantined with. They're going on Zoom to create like their own web series, or there was even a play reading that happened the other night on Zoom. Oh wow! So people are finding you know these these incredibly creative ways to connect people, to still be able to share narrative. I mean, it's, it's just become a virtual campfire is really what it's become. That's a, you know, that's a very good description from what we're seeing unfold with the arts and even not just the smaller groups of actors, theater actors and independent actors such as yourself, but even, you know, big name. Um, yeah. I, I got the, I just am in, was enthralled the other day. Brian May was actually giving a guitar lesson on how to play his riff in Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, that is killer. I would love that. And That's amazing. He played it the way he normally plays. Then he slowed it down, showing the finger placements. Then he's showing everybody the gear that he uses, very simple Vox amplifier. And just 
you can't you can't ask for any more than that. You can't. I mean, I, I think that that's exactly like people. People. I think our our ultimate. Uh, what am I trying to say? I think our innate uh, something innate within us wants us to connect with other with other yeah. things and people and animals and um, people are finding ways currently to find ways to continue to connect and I think some of them are highly innovative. Some of them we're looking at them and going like, wow, why weren't we doing that all along anyway? Like, why why were we just you know hold into certain platforms thinking that we had to do things a certain way? And I think what this is going to teach us or allow us to do going forward is to find ever new innovative ways to share and connect and be a part of, of somebody else's community. But nothing compares with being face-to-face in person. That's exactly right. Nothing compares with being face-to-face in person. I mean, and again, this, this goes back to what you were saying for both of these movies. You know, with Ophelia Falls, she has to come back home face-to-face yeah. with those people yeah. to, to deal with everything that's happening in her life. And had she not done that, then obviously we wouldn't get the middle uh, and the resolution of that narrative that Julie has so wonderfully written. Same way with Megan's character and, and uh, Batshit Bride. Yep. She has to hear and see what all those people actually think about her. Yes. Right? Face to face before it propels her into what becomes like some of the most comedic bits of, of that narrative. Yeah. Jonathan and Wendy, I, I'm sorry, Jonathan, Wendy, Julie's sister, Jonathan and Julie, speaking literally, um, yes. are just so deft with dialogue and i think like they they have such an ear for how people really talk to one another especially in in comedic situations i mean julie is a highly gifted trained comedic actress so like she knows like she she just knows how people talk and i think both of these films are like perfect snapshots (laughs) right yes Of, of something that could have gone horribly awry but told through such a comedic lens julie's being a bit more of a dry wit and uh, jonathan's being a bit more lighter but it, still, the net result is you're going to sit in front of your computer and you're going to belly laugh, right? Like it's a good portal oh, or you're watching. Especially one of my favorite scenes in Ophelia Falls is when they are in the um, emergency room, waiting room, and they're they're having the conversation around the vending machine and, and, and who was a better kisser in, in high school. Do you remember that? Oh, my I'm God. Oh, yes. It's so, it's so, like, it's just a conversation that you're like, oh, my God, I hear that. I know those people so well. I know those people so well. It's great. Well, unfortunately, my darling, I have to let you go so that I can welcome my next guest. And this is a documentary that you have to see that I think you will love. I've got writer-director Brent Wilson coming on in just a second here. He's got a documentary, Streetlight Harmonies, about the history of doo-wop. Oh, yes. Uh-huh. And he has, yes, I would he love has that. archival footage that has been restored. And he's got interviews with people like, uh, you know, the legends. Uh, Lala Brooks, uh, Charlie Thomas, who was part of the Drifters. Um, you know, some of the guys, um, current day... Brian, Brian McKnight, Al Jardine, Brian Wilson, Lance Bass, um, all of these people uh, talking about free to paint. Uh, they're all talking about the history of doo-wop. Oh, that, that is right up my alley. I and you're going to know. link to all everybody's things on your um, Facebook page, so we'll be able to follow each other yes. and share those stories. Great. Yes. Great, great, great. Well, I will let you go, my darling. And thank, yeah, thank you so much. This is always a huge honor and a privilege oh. to like chat and chew with you. <laughs> and you will be back again. 
Yay! And I will see you in L.A. soon. We'll do it face-to-face. Yes, we will. All right, you take care of right, yourself. You too. Be safe. Bye. Bye-bye. And that was Chad Anthony Miller, whom, yes, I adore. And now, very excited to welcome Brent Wilson to the show. Hello, Brent. Are you there? This isn't Brent Wilson, no. Okay, who do... Okay, hold on. Okay, I don't know what what we're doing with the phones here. Number one is Brent. Brent, is that you? It is. Hello, Brent. Welcome to Behind the Lens. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Oh, well, talk about a pleasure for me. Streetlight Harmonies. And I was just, my heart stopped. I gasped. Um, going through this and we get to the Geeter with the heater. Um, I have known Jerry Blavitt for over 50 years. Is that right? He worked with my dad at WFIL in Philadelphia. Wow. For a number of years. He, He is a legend, isn't he? Oh my God. He is, he is, and he has just as much energy now as he had back in the 1960s. It's just absolutely amazing. Absolutely. Debbie, he rode his bike to the interview. <laughs> he rides his bike every day to work. Oh, it's my God. Unbelievable. Oh, my God. And that energy that you see in, on camera, it's, as you said, I mean, it's, it's a real thing. I don't know what he eats. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I know, you know, all summer long, I always love to tune in and listen to his live show that comes from uh, down the beach, down the shore in Jersey. Yes. Um, he does a live broadcast. But you bringing him into Streetlight Harmonies and especially bookending at the tail end after the credits, people have to stay through the credits. Um, yes. Because it is absolutely phenomenal to, you know, to listen, to listen to Jerry, you know, actually like sign us out of the show. Uh, But his. We were so happy to have him. He just provided such wonderful context for the film. Oh, Uh, he's a man that's lived it. He's seen it. um, And he still has a passion for it. It was just a wonderful, wonderful addition. Oh, I mean, he is amazing. Uh, absolutely amazing. And I, how did you go back? I know that you, you started producing music videos years ago. Um, you've moved into other things. Doo-wop is not really at the top of the first thing people think of when they think of music. I know for me, one of the great things growing up in Philly, you didn't grow up in Philly in the 60s and not know what doo-wop was. It, it just doesn't happen. Um, but I know for many years after I came to L.A., Universal Amphitheater, there was a, a doo-wop show that would come every year for a number of years with all of these old acts. And it was fabulous. But what led you to the idea of taking a look at the history of doo-wop? And, of course, I mean, this the title is a no-brainer, Streetlight Harmonies. 
It is. Uh, it says it all, doesn't it? It's, um, you know, four or five guys standing under a streetlight, just, you know, having those beautiful harmonies. It's so um, Americana to me. Um, it's just, it evokes such powerful imagery. So we were really, we're really pleased with the, with the title. But I, I, with how the film started was, um, you know, I grew up uh, you know, in the 70s. You know, this was a time before Disney Radio or even Walkmans, mm-hmm. um, you know, 50 years old. And, and so you were, at that time, you were really forced to listen to your parents' music. Um, you're in the car. There's no Disney Radio. You just listen to your parents' music. And I just grew to appreciate it and really enjoy it. Um, as I became a young teenager, I became uh, a big fan of American Graffiti, uh, which just featured so much of that great music yeah. and a little bit later stand by me. So you really got, I really got exposed to that music and understood its power. I think, um, our producer, uh, Tim Heddington is a lover of art. He collects art. He loves music. And we were having a conversation one day about, about doo-wop music. And he, you know, he began to ask, is there really been a, a, a serious, you know, look at this music? And as we did a little bit of research and thought about it, it there hadn't been. And so it was Tim who suggested, you know, let's, let's do a project where we can examine this art form, give it its due appreciation, and, uh, and hopefully expose it to, to people who may not know much about it. Mm-hmm. So it was really Tim's idea, and uh, Teresa and I, uh, our other producer, we dove into the research and dove into trying to track down some of these incredible artists and began the journey of, of learning more about, the, about this music. You know, how, where do you even start with researching this and finding the, the talent that may still be out there after you establish the preeminent? Like, obviously, yes, you're going to have Frankie Lyman. You've got to focus on Frankie Lyman because that really is what brought doo-wop into the mainstream for most people uh, with Why Do Fools Fall in Love. So I'm curious, you know, what that process was like for you to, you know, you start researching and you've got the Orioles, you've got the Coasters, you've got the Drifters, the Ink Spots, you've got all the female groups, um, because there were so many female groups doing doo-wop and harmonization. And, but how do you then start developing this through line and figuring out what you're going to include and what you're not going to include and what were the seminal songs and who were the seminal artists because this is a massive undertaking <laughs> thank you it it truly was um when we began you know there's not much material out there you know there's no books uh, maybe no. A, a few books that kind of examine some of the songs but nothing significant to the themes that we wanted to explore uh, so it, it was, it was a massive undertaking for us. Uh, we initially had, you know, we had a very difficult time tracking down some of the artists. Mm-hmm. Um, our producer, uh, Teresa Page, Teresa was just, you know, she was like a hound dog. I gotta say, she was just running, uh, trying to run these guys and girls down. And of course, many of them are in their seventies and eighties and they don't have social media or use email, those types of things. Yep. And so it's just phone call to phone call to phone call asking if somebody knows somebody who knows somebody and one clue leads you to another clue. And once we even made contact, what we discovered was is that many of the artists were very skeptical. 
Mm-hmm. Um, here, they'd all been ripped off at some point. They had lost lyrics. They had had their publishing mm-hmm. taken. So they were very cynical of somebody coming in trying to tell their story. So we had to earn their trust. So I was very proud of the fact that, you know, through this process, every artist that we interviewed was, was so pleased and happy with how the film turned out. And we, we did. We earned their trust and they became our friends. Um, and then as far as discovering the themes, what we, what we had to really do is, is, you know, we would do these interviews and they were typically, you know, three to four hours long. Mm-hmm. And all you could do was have your kind of basic questions, your fundamental questions, but you had to listen. And so we would let these guys and girls tell their stories and explain to us kind of the beginning to end what what their career span was. And then from there, you could go off into different areas. Um, and we discovered, you know, the, about the civil rights, about how this was the first music that was probably ever heard in a lot of white homes mm-hmm. and how some of these young kids would later be registering voters and marching. So that was something that was just a beautiful discovery. Um, so there was a lot of moments like that where you you rely on the artists to tell their story. As filmmakers, we listen and and try to let the story come to us. Um, and then I think also to the music, right? You mm-hmm. you you let the music guide you a certain way. Um, there's not. Uh, um, you don't go in thinking, oh, my gosh, I have to have 30 songs. Um, but we ended up using, like, 32 songs. Yes, and we were so proud of the fact that there are 32 masters uh, in the film. Um, and those songs kind of lead you from one song to the next. Mm-hmm. So it is. It's, it's just a bit of a mystery map, and you follow it through and, uh, and hope at the end that you come out with a project that people are entertained by. Well, I've got to ask you, when it comes to songs, and you have a ton of archival footage in here, which I have to say is beautifully restored. Uh, I was very impressed by that. But you have all of this archival footage. You have all of these songs. Uh, What were the licensing challenges that you were facing to get permission uh, to use all of this content? Because obviously, you know, a lot of it as, you know, when you had these 15 and 16 year old kids originally writing these songs and they don't have any protection. So they don't own the rights to their, to their works anymore. So they can't tell you, Charlie Thomas can't tell you, okay, yeah, you can use this drifter song. So what was, did that present any, any more hurdles and obstacles for you? It certainly did. It was um, just a massive undertaking. Um, Because as you said, a lot of these artists don't even know who owns the rights to the music. Yeah. Their companies are bought and sold and percentages are bought and sold. Um, and it does. It becomes just a, a daunting task to clear all of these different songs. Uh, we had a tremendous music supervisor uh, who just, Trina Marie Hill, who again just had to hunt and hunt and hunt and track these down. I'll tell you one funny story. We had a song um, I can't remember the specific song it was, but literally 12% of just the publishing was all was, was written by a gentleman, and he had 12%. And he, when he passed away, he passed it on to his synagogue. He passed on his, you know, his oh. rights to his synagogue. And so we're Trina's literally 
trying to reach a rabbi um, to get him to sign a contract to cash a check so that we could clear the music. And he's like, I can't... I can't deal with this. I'm trying to prepare for a sermon. I don't have oh, time to no. read this legalese paperwork. Uh, but that was the type of things that we had to do. Um, and it, it, it's something I'm really proud of because we did want to spend the money for the songs. I'd say 50% of our budget is, is just in music and film clearances. Wow. Because you look at, at the songs you've got. You've got Baby, Please uh, please Don't Go. You've got Come Go With Me. Um uh, good night, sweetheart. Good night. It's time to go. Um, you even get Patty Pages. How much for the do- is that doggy in the window? Um, you know, and, you know. I only have eyes for you. If I didn't care, in the still of the night, these are classics. My uh, my life would not be what it is and what it has become without all of these songs being part of my life. Um. So to see so. them all here, Brent, is just, it just amaz- amazes me. Amazes me. Thank you. Yeah, we were very, um, when we started out, the theory was we didn't want to, you know, use a music business term. We didn't want to break any new doo-wop songs. The idea was that we wanted to have songs that were kind of in the ether, songs that maybe you'd heard in a movie like in the still of the night, which is in, I believe, uh, Dirty Dancing. Like that's mm-hmm. how my wife had heard of, heard of that song. It's in Dirty Dancing, or maybe you had seen American Graffiti, or um, The Ink Spots. If I Didn't Care is in um, Shawshank Redemption. So there was these songs that are maybe in commercials, maybe they're in movies, but they're out there kind of in the ether, and you've heard them, but you don't know where you've heard them. And through this film, you can now connect the dots and go, oh, gosh, that's from the Mm -hmm. Crystals. I love that song. Or I love Maybe. And I saw that in um, Adventures in Babysitting, Mm -hmm. I believe that was in. And now you connect the dots from that movie you saw to that song, to that artist, and then to the sacrifice that artist made for that song. And so that was always our, our philosophy. We just wanted music that was out there in the ether that would hopefully connect to the audience in some other, in some other way and then allow them to appreciate that song further. And then maybe, if we're really lucky, go and do a little more research on that artist or go, you know what, I really love that song. Uh, you know, by the Chantels. Let me go see what else is on Apple iTunes and uh, and learn a little bit more about the Chantels or the Drifters and and play their music and explore their playlists a little more. So that was all. That was always our hope. Well, something that you very very keenly do uh, with this production is you give us a timeline that you uh, the, an animated timeline you periodically go back to. Uh, you go back to the Chiron as you're taking us through the years, and we get to see how. Doo-wop then melded with R&B and how that became the Motown sound. And then how, you know, the surf sound, the Beach Boys harmonies then came into play. And hearing Al Jardine and Brian Wilson talk was really interesting. Um, And then you take it all the way up. So we get, you know, Brian McKnight, we get Lance Bass. And you see how the roots of doo-wop have come all the way through the history of music. 
that was certainly one of the things we wanted to do. That was um, it, it was one of the things that you know Teresa and I started out doing in sync, and I did the very first in sync music video, and you know I didn't know anything about pop music. And as I was, as we were doing that, that very first instinct video, um, gosh, 1994 or something like that, 95, I remember, uh, sitting there going, oh man, that's kind of like the drifters. <laughs> that's kind of like uh, the four tops. Um, and it connected, I connected the dots immediately. Um, so that was one of the things that we wanted to do is that to show that even though by its very definition, Doo-wop didn't last very long. It was um, it had a very short window um, that we talk about being, you know, really kind of killed by the Beatles um, yeah. and the evolution of music at that point. But how it did, it still had its legacy in you know today um, with all of the you know there, there there would be no Justin Bieber if there wasn't uh, Frankie Lyman, um, you know Michael Jackson. Uh, is Frankie Lyman. Um, and so we wanted to make those connections um, and just remind audiences that when they're listening to, you know, uh, I don't know, Backstreet Boys or NSYNC or even some of the pop groups today, you know, the Korean pop, the K-pop, mm-hmm. those roots are in what these kids laid down. Yeah. That's, these were the seeds that were planted. And there wouldn't be a lot of the artists that we have today without without these young kids in the mid fifties doing what they did and making the sacrifices that they made and letting those kids learn the lessons the hard way. Well, and that, that's something that as you listen to the interview subjects and they reflect back on their life and you really, your heart goes out to them because of the fact they were, so many of them were so young, they were in their teens and you know, this was essentially like their own gangs on street corners. They were gangs with music. That's, you know, yes. that's what it was. Um, it wasn't the Jets and the Sharks out there. It was uh, it was the, the Coasters, the Orioles, and the Clovers on different street corners. Yes. Um, yes. <laughs> but to, to listen to them, especially like listening to Charlie Thomas, uh, you know, about what transpired over the years and, you know, the fact that all of this energy, all this love, all of this uh, creativity that they put into their songs, their performances, their friendships uh, back in the 50s and, and early 60s, they had no, they didn't know any better and people took advantage of them. And that's something that really strikes a chord. Um, and it's why today, you know, everybody talks about, oh, they, everybody's got managers, they've got this, they've got that. Well, there's a reason that a lot of that has developed over the years. And all you have to do is listen to some of these people. And you find out why. 100%. And yeah, yeah, 100%. I found that quite, was, quite moving. It, 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 the first, one of the first stories that we heard was one of the first interviews we did, and it just struck a chord with me because I could just, I don't know, you could just identify with it. it was we interviewing Jimmy Merchant of the Teenagers and, you know, who wrote, you know, co-wrote Why Do Fools Fall in Love? Mm-hmm. And he tells the story of, uh, you know, signing with a publisher and, uh, you know, who's this, you know, uh, very famous music publisher, you know, the stories are out there about him and being connected to certain nefarious groups. <laughs> but he comes back to his parents' house. He's not old enough to sign. And, you know, his father is a janitor 
And I think he said his father made $15 a week and his mother cleaned houses and she made $10 a week. And here, here was this guy that drove up in front of their apartment in a Cadillac and said, I want to pay your son $20 a week. Sign here. Uh, who wouldn't do that? Um, never, nobody ever thought that the music was going to last, that there was value in those songs. Uh, but, you know, Why Do Fools Fall in Love has been covered a hundred times. And it's, uh, you know, you hear it every day. And, I, you know, you couldn't blame Jimmy for signing away everything no. for the right at 16 years old to make $20 a week to sing, which is something you were doing for free anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I heard, when we heard that story, I knew that that was a thing that needed to be explored. And, and as we went down that path, we discovered it, it happened to most all of them. Yeah. And that, that just breaks my heart um, to actually see and hear it's like it's one thing that you know that this has happened. It's another when you actually hear from these people. And they're all still so vital. And you can see that what you capture with your camera work as you're doing the interviews, you can see the light in their eyes as they talk about, you know, their careers and talk about their passion and their love for the music. And that's something very special. And you see that in so many of them. Um, and I applaud you and, uh, your cam and the guys doing your camera work during the interviews that really caught that. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. It was, um, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, you hear a lot in the documentary business, there's a kind of a negative connotation that goes what they call talking heads, but I don't think it's a negative thing. I love seeing the faces. Um, I love seeing the little inflections that mm-hmm. comes with telling a story. And yeah. if, if you're lucky, you, you get that emotion. And um, I, I don't find, you know, the, the term talking head to be a negative thing. I love seeing their faces. So thank you for that. I appreciate you saying that because as a filmmaker, uh, it's something that I, I like to do and something that as a, as a viewer I like to see. Mm-hmm. Well, something that is a real treat for everyone to see is your climactic performance of Stand By Me. Uh, how, how difficult was that to pull off? Yes, it was, it was really difficult. Um, just tough to get everybody to coordinate. There are so many members of um, Straight New Chaser, and they're spread out all over the country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they all live in different parts of the, of the country. And then we had Lala and Vito. Vito is in Long Island. Lala is in New York. And then Charlie Thomas of the Drifters is uh, down in D.C. So to bring everyone together was, um, it was a difficult task. And you don't know if it's going to work or not. Because uh, they are, you know, they come in, they've never met, uh, they've never rehearsed the songs. Yeah. You're just, you've got one day in the studio to try to make it happen and you're crossing your fingers. And I got to say the second they started to rehearse just around the piano, wow. uh, I mean, the chills just went up my back. Um, and I knew just from the very beginning, I was in the hallway and I heard them starting to rehearse and I was talking to a DP or something and I heard them starting to rehearse. And I was like, hang on a second, I want to walk in here and see what's going on. And I walked out of the hallway into the studio, and they were standing around that piano, 
and like I said, the hairs just go up on your back. And I think we did, I think all we did was two takes of that. Oh my God. There wasn't any reason to do any more. Um, it was just phenomenal, the blending of the voices. And you just, you knew you just captured lightning in a bottle. Um, it was one of those moments as a filmmaker where I don't think I even directed. I just stood back and watched. I had the camera guys in certain positions and I didn't need to give them any camera direction. I didn't need to do anything. I just stood back and watched and, and enjoyed the moment. And it's, as a filmmaker, as a fan, it's one of my favorite moments of my life. Uh, so how, how, much, how many extras are we going to have when, you get, when we get a DVD Blu-ray? Yes, tons of extras. Man, we shot these guys for hours and hours. Um, so there's lots of great interview material that didn't make the cut. There are entire uh, subjects that didn't make the cut. So one of the things I knew we wanted to do is I wanted to keep the film brisk. I wanted to keep it moving. I didn't want to lose the audience or have it start to feel like a history lesson. Uh, I guess at the end of the film, I wanted you to uh, be entertained and be happy and to be whistling these tunes. And so I knew to do that, I needed to keep it brisk. Um, and keep the film moving. So there's a lot that ended up uh, on the editing room floor that we're going to be uh, packaging together for for additional content. Oh, my God. Well, I can't wait to see and hear all of that, Brent. You know, unfortunately, we're all out of time today. Now, everybody can get Streetlight Harmonies, what, tomorrow? Yes, tomorrow. Tomorrow, digital and VOD on demand. Yes. So... This is the kind of film I would love to see in a theater, though, just for the whole sound experience. And, you know, this this would play really well in a theater. So damn you, COVID-19. Uh, yes, it's 100%. <laughs> uh, well, Brent, I can't thank you enough. And I hope when you get when it's time for the DVD Blu-ray, you'll come back on the show and we can talk about all the extras and things. Um, I would, I would love to. Oh, I would love to have you back. This is so much. This is part of of my life, uh, and having you know Jerry in there, and I'm sure if he were alive, you would have tapped Dick Clark. Um, but uh, very much. Dick was very, very high on our on our list. Uh, Dick's uh, contributions to this music were uh, just yeah, they're they're immeasurable. Yeah, well, Dick Clark was there and announced my birth to my father live on air <laughs> on bandstand. <laughs> is that right? Dick Dick was part of my life until he passed wow. from the day I was born. Wow. Um, but wow. so to borrow from him, I've got to say, Streetlight yeah. Harmonies. I give it a hundred and you can dance to it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> oh, Brent, thank you so, so much. And, uh, no, I will, you. I will talk to you when we get a DVD Blu-ray. Fantastic. Fantastic. Be safe out there. Thanks so much, Brent. You too. Bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. And that is director Brent Wilson talking about the incredible streetlight harmonies um, which I am gaga over. I, I admit it. I am gaga over it. And, uh, I, I can, right now I think, uh, 
it's a film that I think Mark Pellington would love. You heard Chad already talk about. He's ready to see it. You can all see it tomorrow. Uh, digital, VOD, On Demand, Streetlight Harmonies, Ophelia Falls is currently on Amazon Prime. You can see that. You can see the trailer for Batshit Bride starting the 1st. And then next week, we're full up next week, too. Um, so that is all the time we have today. Until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. Behind the Lens.